Monarchists have marked their calendars the 6th of May next year when Charles III is crowned. He became king automatically after his mother, Queen Elizabeth, died in September. But the coronation is the big event, a pageant and a deeply religious ceremony. Charles wants a shorter, more modern service at Westminster Abbey, but its Christian elements will remain, and in a Britain and Commonwealth increasingly not Christian, that's controversial. Catherine Pepinster is author of Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Next Coronation, released this week in Australia. There has been debate in the UK about to what extent this coronation should be a religious ceremony, a religious service, because the number of people who belong to the Church of England and even belong to Christian churches is declining. But as I understand it, there's no question that it is going to be a religious service again. And what will the key religious elements actually look like? The framework of the coronation service is a communion service. There are three key parts within that communion service. There's the anointing of the monarch, the oath-taking. That's not quite so religious. It's more legal, but it's about religion. And the crowning, and the monarch is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So those are the key components, if you like, surrounded by prayers, surrounded by readings and surrounded by religious music. So it adds up to a pretty religious ceremony. There has been some discussion about whether there might be a a more secular ceremony afterwards. You've raised this question of whether it could be what you call a melting pot coronation. What would a melting pot coronation look like? I think it's entirely possible that it, it won't be quite so Anglican as before. Of course, you know, we haven't had a coronation for 70 years. Britain has changed very much. The Commonwealth changed in that time too. So there have been debates about how it might change. So I think that there are very likely to be the involvement of different Christian denominations. I can imagine that Uh, Leading figures from other Christian denominations might give readings and say prayers. And I think there'll also be the involvement of other faiths. I think it's entirely likely there will be a procession that would involve uh, Muslim representatives, Jewish representatives. We have many Hindus, Sikhs, etc. in the UK and, of course, from the Commonwealth too. So I think they'll be involved. As to whether they might say a prayer, I'm not entirely sure if that's going to happen, but I think it's quite possible. Yes, I mean, if we look at the various remembrance services and indeed the funeral for the late Queen, they were obviously very Anglican, but all the other major Christian denominations, notably the Catholics, were involved. And as you say, the leaders of the Islamic, Jewish, Hindu, Jain, Sikh faiths, they had their moment in the sun, as it were. I think they often greeted the new king at the door of the church. Yes. The thing that is worth remembering is that Westminster Abbey has form in involving other faiths because a significant event, annual event, that's held at Westminster Abbey is the Commonwealth Day service every year. 
that the royal family attend. And that for many, many years has had the involvement of representatives of other faiths. So they know how to do it. And the other thing that happened was between the death of Elizabeth II and her funeral, there were several church services around Britain in the capitals of the devolved nations, those are Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, and they had the involvement of other denominations. And the one in Cardiff, a Muslim said one of the prayers as well. So they know how to do it. There's another very interesting model that you cite Before he became king, Charles attended the coronation of the new emperor of Japan. Now, what did he learn from that event? Well, he learned from that event that you can have more than one ceremony that makes up a coronation. And so they had a deeply religious service in Japan, and then they had another that was more secular. And I think that the new king, who had uh, advisors who who also travelled to Japan for that event, I think he may well be thinking the Japanese who managed something full of tradition also managed something very modern. And I think that's what they're going to try and do. They're going to try and combine the traditional with the contemporary. And the thing that to me is so interesting is that there weren't many other examples that they could look at because in Europe, where there are still several other countries with monarchs, they don't have coronations. So Britain stands alone in in that in Europe. So Japan really was their go-to place to find out how these things can be done in the modern age. Mm. Uh, There is a very sacred, but it's also very secretive part of a coronation ceremony. We haven't seen it for, what, 71 years? And we didn't really even see it 71 years ago when the late Queen was crowned. What happens during the anointing? The anointing, according to people I've spoken to who are religious experts, say that's the most essential religious service, much more important than the coronation. This is the moment when the monarch is blessed. It's very much like a sacrament. It's akin to priestly ordination in many ways. God's grace is bestowed on the person and God's grace will help them in their service over the years. And they're anointed, as often happens in sacraments such as baptism and confirmation, with holy oils. When this last happened with Queen Elizabeth II, she was hidden by a canopy from both the congregation inside Westminster Abbey and also from the television cameras. That was the first coronation uh, shown live on television. But that moment was viewed as so sacred and so precious and so intimate that it wasn't shown. Yes, isn't part of the new monarch's breast exposed and a cross is made on it by the Archbishop of Canterbury? That's why it's so secretive? Yes, the head is also anointed with oil and and the breast too. Yes, the sign of the cross made. It is an intimate, very holy moment. And Elizabeth II was stripped of some of her very rich coronation robes. And then she was just in a white shift for that moment. So very simple gown, rather like babies are dressed in white or adults in white when they're baptised. She was in white. It was almost a form of initiation and it, it suggests a kind of purity about it. I personally don't think that the king is going to be suddenly removing 
what is probably going to be military uniform and be suddenly in a kind of white tunic. I think that's unlikely. When it's a queen who's being anointed and crowned, there's something a bit more sacrificial about it to a slightly disturbing extent, I think. And uh, I just don't think it will have that kind of characteristic with an elderly man. Well, you point out in the book, fascinating book, that it almost has elements of a kind of virgin sacrifice, this young woman being sacrificed to her nation, to her realm, I suppose. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking with Catherine Pepinster about Catherine's new book, Defenders of the Faith, The British Monarchy, Religion and the Next Coronation. And Catherine's book is being released in Australia this week. You also have this rather interesting observation, Charles as Pontifex, Pontifex being bridge builder. I thought Pontifex, interestingly, was the old name for a pope. That's why I deliberately used it. But I think that in many ways is what he's he's trying to do. And we've seen that in these very early weeks of his reign. And I'm sure that he's going to want his coronation to reflect those beliefs and those interests that he has. Mm. The thing that is an issue, and I'm not quite sure how they're going to square this particular circle, is that people in Britain large numbers of them don't have any faith at all. And he's also going to need to kind of bring them into the tent too. Well, one way he may do this, and I'm sure there's a religious impetus for this, and that is through something called a welfare monarchy. What is a welfare monarchy? And does it have some sort of religious impetus behind it? It certainly has certain ideals. This is an idea that a political theorist came up with, the welfare monarchy, Because over the recent years, during the reign, particularly of Elizabeth II, but a little bit perhaps with her father too, what we've seen in Britain is a monarchy that has become very strongly linked to good works, to philanthropy, through patronage of charities, and then also linking itself in some ways to our welfare state, opening hospitals, visiting many of our state schools. It's endorsed the idea that we should all be involved in service of others and provision for those in need. And uh, I think that's something which this monarch will want to continue. It's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you and our guest, Catherine Pepinster, author of the new book, Defenders of the Faith, The British Monarchy, Religion and the Next Coronation. Let's return to Charles's own relationship with the Church of England, of which he is now the Supreme Governor. Remind us of the Archdeacon of York, and what he said in 1993 about then Prince Charles. This takes us back to the times of Charles's marital troubles when his first marriage to Diana, the Princess of Wales, went badly wrong. Many people blamed it going badly wrong on the prince and his involvement with Camilla Parker Bowles. And the Archdeacon of York was one of the more outspoken clerics of the time and said that he shouldn't be king because of this situation. This did cause tension between the then Prince of Wales and the Church of England. And he felt 
alienated, I think. Um, it is said that for some years he didn't really attend church services in the Church of England. He, he, he turned up for the key events, but otherwise he wasn't attending church. Eventually, there was a mellowing in that, both, I think, by the public and by the Church of England after Diana's death uh, in 1997. And then in 2005, the then Prince of Wales did marry Camilla Parker Bowles. But the situation was that the Church of England said that he couldn't have a full church wedding. And so they married in a register office and then had a church blessing. But uh, I understand that that also infuriated him. Mm. So it has been a difficult relationship. Yes, but... Somehow, Charles and Camilla have managed to reconcile their second marriage with church doctrine. So something changed in church doctrine, didn't it? It did. And we saw that when Harry and Meghan got married, because Meghan was a divorcee, and they had a full wedding, Church of England wedding, in St George's Chapel, where his father had previously only been allowed a church blessing. So the Church of England has changed its view over the years. There is some speculation, and you raise this in the book, as to whether Camilla's marriage, first marriage to Andrew Parker Bowles, who was a Catholic, has in fact been annulled by the Church. I've been told by several people that her first marriage, her Catholic marriage to Andrew Parker Bowles, was annulled. I've been assured of that from the Vatican side. When I raised it with the then Prince of Wales office, they declined to answer the question. They just ignored the question. Now, finally, Catherine, Walter Badgett, the great British writer and constitutional scholar, when he was asked about the monarchy, you know, being the head of the church or the head of state, I think he said, no, the monarchy is the head of our morality I mean, is that still a viable notion in a country that's frankly, in a world that's frankly pretty permissive today, you know, to have someone presented as the head of our morality? I think that saying head of our morality sounds very odd to 21st century ears. I think a different way of saying it might be embodies our country's values. I think that's the kind of thing that King Charles would say. And that would be why he would say that he has this duty to protect the space for faith, that that is what Britain should be about in the modern age. But to say head of morality does sound slightly odd, because I think for most people, morality means personal behaviour. And I don't think people like the idea of anybody telling them what their personal behaviour should be. And I think there are still plenty of people who would say of the royal family, well, given how some of them have behaved, I don't think they should be held up as exemplars of how we should behave. And of course, one of the things that keeps happening is that every time they think life is for them is calming down a bit, another series of The Crown appears on Netflix. <laughs> It is fiction. It It is fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you watch it and you know anything about these things, you know that quite a bit of it is not true. Quite a bit of it is true. And so, you know, they combine fact and fiction and then it seems to be quite convincing as being 
the story of the royals and that reinforces the idea that they shouldn't tell us what to do. Well, it's very good to speak with you as always. Catherine Pippenster, she's the former editor of The Tablet, one of the world's leading magazines of faith. Catherine's new book is Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Next Coronation, and it is just released in Australia. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you, Andrew. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.